Luke chapter 9. We begin in verse 27. This is Christ speaking here initially. He says, But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 36. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention in particular to verses 30 and 31, where we read, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. They spake of his decease which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Interesting to note that Luke's gospel is the only one that gives us that detail about what they spoke about when Christ appeared in his glory with these two Old Testament characters. Interesting question to ponder. Uh, what will we talk about when once we get to heaven? An interesting thing to contemplate, isn't it? What will we do? What will we talk about? Will we discuss how much better off we are in heaven than we ever were on the earth? Certainly be plenty to talk about along those lines, I'm sure. Will we reminisce on how difficult our challenges were on earth and what a blessing it is to at last be free from all such trials and afflictions? Perhaps we'll discuss the particulars of the mansions that will be ours in glory. Christ did say that in his Father's house were many mansions and that he was going to prepare a place for his followers. Will this be among the topics of discussion in glory? Well, one of the ways in which we can begin to deal with the question of topics for discussion in glory is to visit those passages in the Gospels which describe a foretaste of glory coming into the world. 
And I'm referring now to those passages in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which present to us the account of the transfiguration of Christ. Interesting to note in connection with the transfiguration accounts that in each case, the transfiguration is preceded by the kind of statement that we have in Luke chapter 9 and verse 27, which reads, but I tell you of a truth, this is Christ speaking now, I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And it's generally recognized that this statement by Christ to his disciples finds its fulfillment in the transfiguration of Christ so that in a sense, that transfiguration represents the glory of the kingdom of God. For it's immediately after these statements that we have the account of Christ taking Peter and James and John into a high mountain where he's transfigured before them in such a way that his countenance outshines the sun. Here then was a foretaste of heaven, for Peter and James and John. Here was a glimpse of how things will be in glory when redemption is at last consummated. And here is a foretaste of heaven for us as we ascend that mount with them through the word of God and by the spirit of God. We know also from each of the accounts that Moses and Elijah appeared with Christ. Now, how Peter and James or John would have recognized those Old Testament characters is a matter of some speculation. The lesson can certainly be drawn from their recognition of Moses and Elijah that we will be enabled by the Lord to recognize other saints that we've never met but have only read about. And the reason I want to focus on Luke's account of the transfiguration today is because, as I said in a, a moment ago, it is in Luke's account alone that we are enabled, in a manner of speaking, to eavesdrop on the conversation that took place between Christ and Moses and Elijah. We're not given the particulars of that conversation, but we are given the topic of their conversation. And this is why I say that we get some idea in this gospel account of the transfiguration of what our discussions may be when we get to heaven. Notice again the words of verse 30 and 31. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So what was the topic of their discussion on that occasion? Verse 31 tells us they spake of Christ's decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. We know, of course, from the book of Revelation that the death of Christ will continue to play a prominent place in our worship in heaven. So we read in Revelation 5 and verse 9, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. 
And a couple of verses later, in verse 12, we have the expression of 10,000 times 10,000, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Interesting to note then, isn't it, that in heavenly worship, it is the lamb slain that is mentioned. I'm always fond of posing a question to those that love to major in prophecy, especially when it comes to the book of Revelation. They pride themselves in being able to figure out every detail in the order of events, etc., etc., And then I put the question to them, what name is given to Christ more than any other in the book of Revelation? Well, they never thought about that, I'm afraid, because that doesn't pertain so much to prophecy. But in fact, it is this very title that we've read, The Lamb, The Lamb Slain. That designation is given to Christ more than any other designation throughout that entire book. It would seem then, wouldn't it, that we will never get over the death of Christ. Not on earth, not in heaven. We never want to get over the death of Christ. We never should get over the death of Christ. The truth of Christ's death will be celebrated in heaven, and we know from Uh, the ordination of the Lord's table, that Christ's death is something to be remembered throughout the course of church history. Given the topic of discussion between Christ with Moses and Elijah and the worship of the multitudes in heaven, I think you could argue that there's a sense in which this ordinance provides for us something of a foretaste of heaven. It follows then that the discussion between Christ and Moses and Elijah in the context of future glory magnifies all the more the importance of the death of Christ. And since it's our task around the Lord's table to magnify the death of Christ, this topic of discussion between Christ with Moses and Elijah is an appropriate topic for us to contemplate this morning in preparation for our remembrance of Christ around his table. Magnifying Christ's death in our remembrance of him. That's my theme then today. This is our theme, and in the moments that remain, I want to draw your attention to some of the ways in which Christ's death is magnified in this conversation between Christ with Moses and Elijah. Consider, first of all, that we magnify Christ's death, one, by viewing Christ's death as an accomplishment. Note from verse 31 that Moses and Elijah spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. We don't usually think of death as an accomplishment, do we? We view death as a tragedy, and we view it as something that is inevitable to us all. Try as we may, we can avoid it only for so long. 
We may delay, delay it by taking good care of ourselves. We may dodge it a time or two by applying to our bodies the advances we gain in the fields of science and medicine. But eventually, we will succumb to it. And when that happens, the things that will be remembered as accomplishments will be the things we manage to do in our lifetimes. Not the thing that we accomplish by dying itself. Your death and my death really won't be viewed all that much as an accomplishment at all unless by chance you manage to perform some heroic feat in your death that maybe would save the lives of others. Well, keeping this general concept of death in mind, I think you would agree that we find the words of our text to be quite remarkable when we read that Moses and Elijah spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The word accomplish is a word that in other places is translated by the English word fulfill. And we certainly recognize in Christ's death the fulfillment of a number of things. We find it to be the fulfillment of prophecy. For example, Isaiah 53 and verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Or Psalm 22, verses 14 and 15, you can be taken as, as words from Christ himself. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it melteth in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Oh, a vivid portrayal of the crucifixion of Christ before crucifixion was even a known means of execution. We recognize Christ's death then, not only fulfilling prophecy, but we also see it fulfilling the many Old Testament types that were associated with all those animal sacrifices. The sin offering, the trespass offering, the peace offering, the burnt offering, they all find their fulfillment in Christ. He is our sin offering, and it's by his death that we gain peace. And he fulfilled all that the burnt offering symbolized by bearing the flames of God's wrath in our place. Never forgotten the words of Ian Paisley along this line. I don't know if this was original with him. Chances are he got it from someone else. But he noted how in the burnt offerings, the sacrifice was consumed by the flames. Whereas in the offering of Christ, you find the flames being consumed in the sacrifice. What a blessed and glorious way to view Christ and what he accomplished as the antitype to the burnt offering. We magnify Christ's death then by seeing in it God's purpose for the ages and by seeing Christ meeting and fulfilling that purpose. I'm glad that the translators of our authorized version, though, saw fit to utilize the word accomplish rather than use the word fulfill. I think the word accomplish places stronger emphasis on the success of Christ's death 
and all that was intended by it. And we certainly are able to magnify Christ's death in our hearts and minds when we contemplate all that was accomplished by it. We know that the purging of our sins was accomplished by the atoning death of Christ. So we read in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, words pertaining to Christ, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Question, how can you have assurance that your sins have been purged? The answer because Christ is seated at the right hand of God, a place that he earned having accomplished the purging of our sins. And what an accomplishment. Think about it, our sins purged. The word purge means cleansed. And so successful was this accomplishment by Christ that it can be uh, said in Isaiah 44 and verse 22, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. And a chapter earlier in Isaiah, we read in chapter 43 and verse 25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for my name's sake and will not remember thy sins. Doesn't such a statement show us what an accomplishment the death of Christ really was? He has purged our sins from the remembrance of God. They've been removed from us, according to the psalmist, as far as the east is from the west. God has cast them, to use the words of one preacher, into the sea of God's forgetfulness to be remembered against us no more. We also know that Christ accomplished redemption by his atoning death. So we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Here the key word is obtained. From the point of Christ's atoning death on Calvary's cross, we became his purchased possession. He obtained our redemption. He would not lose us. He paid too high a price for us. And it's statements such as these, and there are many more. He purged our sins. He obtained eternal redemption for us. These are statements that lead us to conclude that the atonement of Christ was a definite atonement. His accomplishment was and is an actual accomplishment, not a hypothetical one. I remember some time back, I think I ran us through uh, the method that John Owens leads in his uh, work, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, uh, a work that is devoted to proving that, that it was a definite atonement that Christ accomplished. And what John Owen does is he takes verses like the two I've cited, and he adds to them more besides. He categorizes them under the category of uh, accomplishment. 
things that are accomplished. And then he has another category of verses he walks the reader through, which speak of Christ's intention. What did he intend to do when he came? And by drawing from both categories of Scripture, he comes to the conclusion that Christ accomplished exactly what he intended to accomplish, which was redemption, the purging of our sins, etc., etc., Those that attack the doctrine that is sometimes referred to, a misnomer, I might say, uh, the doctrine of limited atonement, they're actually guilty of the very things that they accuse Calvinists of. In other words, they're the ones that place limitations on the atonement by making it something less than definite. Most gladly do we affirm what Moses and Elijah discussed with Christ, that is, that his decease would be an accomplishment. His death would purge our sins, it would purchase us to God, it would propitiate God's burning anger against us, it would accomplish our reconciliation to God. These are but a few of the things that were accomplished by Christ's atoning death, and we do well to magnify his death by viewing not merely his death as a tragic circumstance of history, but rather we view it as the accomplishment of redemption. But would you notice with me next that we not only magnify Christ's death by viewing it as an accomplishment, but we also magnify his death by magnifying the person who accomplished such great things. Who could accomplish the things that we've considered now under the previous heading? And especially, who could accomplish such things through his death? Could one man's death purge the sins of many? Could one man's death appease the righteous anger and just wrath of God for many? Death itself, you see, is is viewed as a penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death, Paul tells us in that familiar verse in Romans 3. What kind of person, then, would it take to bring forth such great accomplishments through his death? The answer is, of course, nobody short of the God-man. The man, Christ Jesus, could accomplish these kinds of things through his death. And the thing we have to appreciate about these narratives in the Gospels that describe Christ's transfiguration for us as they show us quite plainly and quite amazingly that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is God himself. Behold him then in his glory as he shines with a radiant splendor that's described by Luke as white and glistering. Matthew describes it this way. His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Mark has his own way of describing it. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. You get the impression, don't you, through these multiplied expressions that the gospel authors were 
kind of struggling to find words that were even adequate to describe Christ in his transfigured glory. It defied description, but this is as close as we can come. You know, white and glistering, white as the light, exceeding white as snow. This is the revelation of Christ in his glory. These statements show us the truth of Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, that Christ is the brightness of his Father's glory and the express image of his person. Here we see in some measure what Paul says of Christ in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. And as we read of Peter and James and John entering into the bright cloud of God's glory, we may conclude that they go from glory to glory. It's no wonder we're told that they feared as they entered into that cloud, verse 34. They were indeed treading on holy ground. And in the midst of that glorious cloud, they heard what was rarely ever heard, the voice of God the Father himself testifying about his Son. This is my beloved Son, hear him, verse 35. What a strong affirmation then to the deity of Christ. God the Father says that he's the Son of God, Christ shining forth in his glory manifests the glory that he had with his Father before the world even was. And as I've said on other occasions, when I've referred to God the Father's testimony regarding his Son, this testimony gives us cause to praise and magnify our Lord, because if the Father is pleased with his Son, then God can be pleased with you and me as we're joined to his Son. And Matthew adds this statement to the Father's testimony of his Son, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Such a statement from God the Father indicates to us that Christ up to that point in his earthly ministry has succeeded in accomplishing his stated purpose for entering the world, which was to fulfill the law. We magnify him then by rejoicing in the accomplishment of his life. He's done what no other man has ever done. He's obeyed his father. He's fulfilled his obedience in such a way that the father could testify that he's pleased with his son. But we should note here also that no other person but such a person as the Son of God could accomplish what needed to be accomplished by his atoning death. If one man's blood, you see, is to be counted for the life of others, then that blood must have value that rises above others. And Christ's blood, by virtue of his person, is infinite in its value. This is why John could write in his first epistle that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2. 
This statement tells us that Christ's blood was and is sufficient to accomplish all that God designed to accomplish in the plan of redemption. There was no limit to how the blood of Christ could be applied because his blood is infinite in its value. Matthew's gospel tells us that when the disciples heard the voice of God the Father testifying to the truth of his Son, that they fell on their face and were sore afraid. It's in Matthew 17 and verse 6. We would certainly do well to imitate their example by bowing in our hearts before God and before our Savior with deep humility and solemn reverence, as well as gratitude for so great a Savior who could bring forth such a great accomplishment by his life and by his death. We magnify his death then by viewing his death as an accomplishment. We magnify his death by magnifying the person who died No other person could have accomplished what the Son of God, who was and is the Son of Man, accomplished. Let me say a word finally about how we magnify his death by understanding our dependence on that death. We magnify his death by understanding our dependence on that death. Isn't it interesting to read that Moses and Elijah appeared with Christ in glory and they spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. What do you suppose they could have said to Christ as they spoke about his decease? There they were in glory, and yet they could have no claim to glory. They could have no privilege to remain in glory unless that death they spoke of was in fact accomplished. What could they have said to Christ but that they needed him to see it through? And they would be so appreciative to him if he would see it through. I can't imagine a more humbling discussion on the part of Moses and Elijah, and they would have been speaking on behalf of all saints who had gone to glory. None of them could remain there to praise and worship Christ unless their sins were atoned for. Could they play any part at all in encouraging Christ on this occasion? I suppose their presence with him in glory would have served as a reminder to Christ that he would gain his inheritance of a redeemed people by seeing the matter through to its accomplishment and conclusion. We can only speculate because we don't have the particulars of their discussion. But it's not hard to envision Christ encouraging them. We are told, after all, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, and I love this text, it says, When the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, which indicates to us, doesn't it, that Christ was strongly resolved to see the matter to its conclusion. And we magnify his name by expressing to him our recognition of our need of his atoning death. 
You could say that in our time around the Lord's table, as we engage in prayer and as we affectionately meditate on his sufferings and death, we are able, in a sense, to enter into the same discussion with him that Moses and Elijah had with him. Put yourself, if you will, in your mind's eye, in the place of Moses or Elijah. You're with Christ in glory as he's transfigured in the mount. You have the opportunity to converse with him. What would you say? What could you say? Lord, we need you, and we love you, and we praise you for your willingness to accomplish our redemption by your atoning death. We beg you, Lord Jesus, to see the matter through, for apart from such an accomplishment, we cannot be saved and we cannot fellowship with you in heaven. Our perspective, of course, is different than Moses and Elijah because Christ did see the matter through, and we know that he successfully accomplished our redemption by his atoning death. What I would have you know this morning is that the same privilege that belonged to Moses and Elijah now belongs to you and to me around the Lord's table. This is your opportunity to speak with Christ regarding his decease, which he accomplished at Jerusalem. It is now your privilege to magnify his death by remembering all that was accomplished by it. It's your privilege to worship the person who accomplished so much, and it's your duty and privilege, and I trust your desire, to pledge your faith in his atoning blood and acknowledge your dependence on it by remembering and appropriating it anew and afresh as you partake of the bread and the cup this morning. I love that hymn in our hymn book that has the refrain to it. I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me. That on the cross, he shed his blood from sin to set me free. I love those words because they express our confession and our resolution. I do believe this. By the grace of God, I have been awakened to see my need for his death. And I have come to see, as it's revealed in his word, what was accomplished by that death. I do believe. And by the grace of God and the help of his spirit, I will believe. And that's one of the purposes that these communion elements serve this morning. They give us opportunity to pledge that to God. Lord, by your grace, I do believe and I will believe that Jesus died for me. Oh, may the Lord draw near to you then and lift you into his very presence as you contemplate the glory of his broken body and his shed blood and as you contemplate the benefits gained as a result of his successful accomplishment. May we follow the example of the psalmist in our worship and remembrance who said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. I love what that part of the verse shows us. It shows us a sense in which the psalmist is mustering up all his intestinal fortitude for blessing the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name.
Spare us, Lord, from half-heartedness in our worship. May we bless thee with all our hearts and with all we have. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Psalm 103, the first two verses. Oh, may we indeed follow that example as we think of Christ this morning and the accomplishment that he did accomplish at Jerusalem. Let's close in prayer then before we distribute the elements. And let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now, we thank thee for who Christ is, and we thank thee for what he's accomplished by his atoning death. O Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us never to grow weary of thinking on these things. We thank thee that thou hast ordained this communion table in order to keep our remembrance fresh of what it took for us to gain heaven. It took nothing short of the Son of God becoming a man, living a perfect life, and then shedding his blood to pay a debt we could never pay. O oh Lord, we do ask of thee now to bless us in our remembrance of thy Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.